Welcome to Keeping Green. I'm Ian Perry. This episode of Keeping Green picks up from the last episode, where I got into the recent decision of the Alberta government to rescind a 44-year-old coal policy. This means that lands formerly designated as Category 2, which covered areas of moderate to high environmental sensitivity in the foothills and Rocky Mountains, including the site of the proposed Bighorn Provincial Park, will no longer be protected from open-pit coal mining. The Alberta Energy Regulator has begun to review mining proposals for fragile mountain areas, setting into motion industrial processes that will shave forests down to bare rock and whittle mountains down to their base for the purposes of excavating metallurgical coal. I realize the economy is struggling, and that in Alberta, in addition to COVID-19, we face the effects of low oil prices. But like so many millions of people in the last few months, I've taken the time to reflect on what's most important in life. Sure, we enjoy a high economic standard, but this would be impossible if not for the life support system around us. And I'm talking about the earth and its ecosystem services, water, air, the cleaning of those services, the regulation of climate. As we struggle to regain normality, we have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to sacrifice? What is the legacy we want to leave behind? Can we strike a balance between environmental conservation and renewed economic growth? To discuss these ideas, I've asked Nissa Peterson of the Alberta Wilderness Association and Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives to join me. First, I'll speak with Nissa about what we can expect from coal mining in the Alberta Rockies and what her organization, the Alberta Wilderness Association, is doing in the fight to oppose and to question some of these new proposals. I want to ask you a little bit about the coal development that we have in this region already. Mm -hmm. And that's not so far from where we are in Calgary. That's just over the border in the Elk Valley near the towns of Elkford and Sparwood. Mm -hmm. And what do we see there? Can you give us a bit of a rundown? Yeah. So in the Elk Valley, there's, I think, four operations that are being run by tech. They they essentially have the stronghold in that area. Uh, so that's Elkview, Fording River, Green Hills, Lime Creek. And I believe that there is now a four, uh, fifth sorry, operation that's going to be coming online. It's called Castle. Um, essentially an extension of the lifespan of the Fording River operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so tech has been operating in the Elk Valley for quite some time. And uh, most of those operations are are essentially like, you know, adjacent to each other. Like they all run alongside Highway 43. Um, and in, when we think about the upcoming developments in Alberta, a lot of that's going to be in the Old Man uh, River watershed basin, mm-hmm. basin. And that's like... 30 kilometers away from the Elk Valley. So it's it's pretty close. And um, I think, you know, with a lot of the projects that are, you know, somewhat established and coming online in Alberta, 
Elk Valley is a, a really good representation of, of, of what we could become. You know, Alberta could be somewhat on the fast track, you know, with um, this provincial government's outlook on, on coal mining to becoming the new Elk Valley. And, and, that's, and that's really scary because mm. there's a lot of lessons to be learned from all of those mining operations in Elk Valley and what not to do. Mm. And uh, it's, it's been very public. A lot of people know about all of the, the implications that that coal mining, which is mostly open pit and like mountaintop removal mm-hmm. coal mining, and uh, the implications it has for you know, surrounding and downstream communities and, and the environment. So, um, y- you know, if, if you look for an example, there's been a lot of uh, selenium contamination mm. issues coming out of the Elk Valley. And a lot of where the problem comes from is um, not just point source effluent. Mm. So like what's actually being put into um, directly from mines into the water bodies, but uh, non-point source effluent, which is, uh, you know, uh, contaminants leaching from waste rock. Mm. So there's these piles and piles of waste rock that are just sitting there and they're slowly becoming eroded by the elements. And a lot of the contaminants that are coming out of that um, are being leached into, you know, both surface water and groundwater. And so that's why you see uh, situations uh, like we do in Elk Valley and, you know, the lower reaches of those rivers where they're seeing a collapse of, you know, West Slope cutthroat trout populations, mm-hmm. bull trout. Uh, there's community wells, uh, water wells in Sparwood that are, you know, in excess of 10 parts per billion of selenium, which exceeds the safe limit for drinking water. Mm. And the safe limit for aquatic life is, I think, two parts per billion. And there's reaches of the um, Elk River that exceed that easily. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with contamination now, and we're going to be dealing with it way, way far into the future. So mm. it's, it's, it's a legacy that we're essentially burdening future generations with. And I think that's that's what's most concerning about it because it's bad now, but it's going to be bad for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's about, you know, it's it doesn't seem like the balance between the well-being of our communities and economic, economic opportunities is, is very equal. It seems to be skewed on one side. And uh, I think, you know, Alberta has to be very careful about, you know, wading into that that situation. Yeah, I think I've heard this place described in certain literature as a climate change refuge in, mm-hmm. in the sense that when other places become too hot, too dry, too uh, unstable uh, in, in the climate sense, that southern Alberta will be a place where people turn to, to uh, enjoy water security, food security, yeah. And I feel like if we start to tear out massive areas of the the watershed, which is the water tower of North America, that our climate resilience will plummet. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's I think that's somewhat true? Entirely fair to say. Um, it, it's you know this idea of like moving the economy forward with progressive and 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 innovative ventures you know coal mining like you said does not fit that description and we like climate change is real (laughs) it's happening and uh you know we need to be thinking about the stresses that that itself is going to have in our environment and then 
what our land use is and how our land uses fit in fit into that. And mm. coal mining as a land use is is only going to compound negative effects on the environment. And so what does that mean for climate resiliency? What does that mean for ecological integrity? But I do want to ask you about AWA's role. So just energy developments, you know, regardless if it's coal, oil and gas, you know, solar, wind, AWA tries to essentially mo- you know, monitor most current and, and proposed projects. And that also includes uh, having conversations with civil servants to understand what their outlook is for Alberta and um, you know, disseminating that information to the public because it, there tends to be a, a disconnect between um, you know, what's actually happening on the ground and, and what's being said is and I think what it's about really is, is um, you know, continuing to monitor projects, current projects, proposed projects, um, you know, keeping civil servants uh, accountable for, for what they are saying and, and, and doing. And then also just giving the public, uh, you know, a general toolkit and skills to become engaged because people tend to be overwhelmed by, you know, the whole energy uh, regulation process in Alberta, whether they don't know where to find the information or how to become engaged. So, and and, and that even in, includes understanding, you know, what information is being put in front of them. So, we we try to take in that information and make it more digestible for the yeah. for the public, so that they actually feel like they have some kind of of opinion and and say in the matter. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 really about just keeping things keeping things on tab and mm-hmm. and and trying to encourage folks to become engaged and 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 teach them how to mm-hmm. essentially find the relevant information that they they may be looking for because mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that uh, you know the regulation process in Alberta is very accessible to the government mm-hmm. um, for an example uh, the Alberta energy regulator the AER um, you know they have like a, a public notice page for applications and decisions but you have to know where to look for and Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a minefield navigating that Mm -hmm. that website so you know like it's it's just not um, as accessible to the public as it should be uh, seeing as that you know most of these energy developments are occurring on public lands and that's a public resource Mm -hmm. so the public should have a say and, and be fully aware of what's going on. Nissa then described how private citizens and nonprofits can provide their input on coal development proposals coming into the province. The federal process is a lot more inclusive and, and accessible to the public because that is actually one of the main objectives or purposes of the um, Impact Assessment Act, which guides the federal process. They actually have, a, you know, somewhat of a clause for meaningful public participation. And so I think right now with all of these projects that are coming online, you know, we need to be essentially pushing all of those buttons to get the best result possible. And it seems that the federal lever is the way to go. Okay. So for like the Vista coal mine um, phase two and the underground mine, we we worked alongside EcoJustice and other NGO partners that, um, you know, requested Minister Wilkinson designate 
the phase two of Colspur's operation for um, a federal impact assessment. And I think that the first time we wrote was in December 2019. And at that time, he didn't deem it worthy. At the end of July, they actually decided that they were going to do a federal assessment. And apparently, um, uh, Colesper has now um, requested a judicial review of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so that's still to be determined. But if that was a standalone provincial process, the likelihood that AWA would have been able to, um, you know, have intervener status or you know, pass that adversely and direct, directly and adversely effective test that the provincial um, process in, employs, it's very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, I think, I think what the future holds and what we can expect for, you know, upcoming public engagement in, in these types of operations is, is, is more favorable to the public if it's a federal joint process, because it's very unlikely that, um, you know, an average citizen would be deemed um, directly and adversely effective under the provincial process. So Mm -hmm. another example I could give you is for Grassy Mountain, AWA and other ENGOs are are a part of that, that joint, federal joint um, process. And the likelihood that we would have been able to participate if it was just provincial would have been null. And it's to give you an idea of the level of inclusiveness is my colleague that is like the main, um, uh, he's responsible for the file. Um, He mentioned that, you know, even there's some fly fly fishermen that are actually going to be making appearance in Mm. in the joint process for Mm. Grassy Mountain. So that's just people who have, you know, a recreational, you know, um, concern in that, in that given watershed that are actually going to have standing in this process. So that just kind of gives you an idea of, of the disparity between a standalone provincial process Mm. and and a joint process with the federal government. So, you know, if, if we want to actually have meaningful public participation, it seems that the majority of the time that's only going to be, you know, really given to the, two citizens under a joint review. Of federal and provincial. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get into some higher level discussions about what this major environmental policy rollback in Alberta means economically and politically. So I brought in a guest from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. My name is Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood. I'm a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. I'm based in Ottawa. Uh, And I work mainly on international trade policy and climate policy. I just want to back up and get your take exactly on what we have here when the UCP government tears down an old environmental policy to make uh, economic growth happen for the province. Uh, I mean, the short answer is that they're kind of looking for any source of economic growth right now. Uh, Alberta's economy is obviously struggling, not just because of COVID, but even um, before that, because of a big drop in oil prices. Um, So, you know, with high unemployment, slow growth, um, kind of flagging government revenues, um, coal seems like an appealing option, at least in the short term. It's an industry that uh, has a history in Alberta. The resources there, um, kind of the supply chains exist. There are workers ready to go 
So kind of on paper, it looks like a good short-term option. Um, I guess the problem is that it is very short-term because there are going to be some pretty significant costs of, ex- of expanding um, coal development in the province, not just um, ecologically. I mean, the most obvious consequences are going to be for things like at-risk species and, and kind of vulnerable ecosystems, uh, human health, since there's a potential uh, impact on drinking water for all of the prairies, um, but also just economic. Um, there, there's just a, a risk that these, these investments become stranded assets in the long term. Um, resource extraction is not the most uh, high value part of the economy. Um, and, and, you know, we risk falling behind um, kind of other countries and other, other economies that are doing more value added work, not just manufacturing, which is the traditional um, uh, kind of value add part of the economy, but also increasingly things like the tech and services sectors. That's where the real value is in the modern economy. So it's really a, a kind of a, 20th century economic model to to go right back to the to extraction as as a primary economic driver and i mean of course there's going to be a mix um alberta does have a thriving knowledge economy already so it's not like it's one or the other uh but it's what do you prioritize as we move kind of further into the 21st century there's you know so much money put into just getting these operations off the ground and the sustainability of them is so weak because it's it's international markets that are that are dictating you know the demand and 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 the need and and that's aside from the fact that you know what's the quality of the coal that's coming out of there so when we're talking about metallurgical coal there's a whole you know, variation of what's like good coal and what's bad coal for for steel making. So, you know, if you have the right seam, that's great. You might have to like cut it with, with some other lower lower tier coal. Um, are you going to have the the demand or the buyers for that end product? You know, who knows, right? So we see so much money being poured into these operations just to get them off the ground. They last for a few years and 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 then they either you know, close down entirely or, you know, go into receivership and then, you know, new company tries to come back in and like revitalize it, but it just doesn't have the longevity. You know, we talk about ecosystem services and provisions and you, you talked about water quality, but I also feel like the government, and this goes back to earlier this year when the park system was, you know, by and large dismantled. Um, We don't, in this modern culture and with this government, take enough time to consider cultural benefits. And those are the benefits that uh, the environment provides to our livelihoods in a non-material way and more of an enjoyment and recreational sense. And I think about tourism, and I've, I've lived in Waterton, I lived there for six years, and Banff is is even bigger and more uh, visited than Waterton, but both of these towns are jammed. Yeah, they're jammed. Mm-hmm. And then you look just over at the crow's nest, and I see amazing, amazing potential for building on tourism there. Um, why can't places like the crow's nest and Grand Cache become like Waterton and Banff? There's no reason why they can't be. Mm-hmm. It would take some spending. It would take some more tourist infrastructure. But we could ease the congestion at Canmore, Banff, Waterton, Lake Louise, Jasper by allowing for renewable tourism dollars. 
Yeah. Well, you could argue, you know, investing in in promoting these areas and in their natural beauty is is a much more wise, um, you know, venture than than coal mining, right? We we know what coal mining is. It's a boom and bust, um, you know, development. But what about COVID-19? Has that changed how governments view economic growth? Here's Hadrian Mertens-Kirkwood again. But there, there's a real risk, and this is frankly what we're seeing from governments right now, is this rush to kind of get back to the old normal by propping up old industries, especially in the extractive sector. Yeah, That's, that's a real risk because, you know, now is the time we should be pivoting to new industries, um, not propping up failing ones. How does COVID-19 change the way that private citizens look at environmental protection? Uh, I think it's really hard. I mean, this is a really important question. um, And a lot of people are thinking about it and talking about it. It's hard to know what the long-term impacts of of the COVID crisis are going to be. There is certainly a bit of a cultural reckoning with how we live right now. And that that can be really productive to to realize... um, Maybe we don't need to fly internationally as much. We don't need to commute as far. Um, there are ways we can continue to live good lives that are less environmentally impactful. And, and that's, that's positive. And just general kind of, kind of cultural change and cultural reckoning that's been provoked by COVID is p- potentially uh, a good thing in terms of making mm-hmm. people um, more socially conscious, more environmentally conscious. It's possible. We'll throw another variable in here for a second. We're looking at a racial reckoning that's taking place right now. With environmental policy rollback uh, of this magnitude, could we start to see upheaval stemming from perceived environmental injustice in this period in history that is quite uh, destabilized politically? Um, I, I mean, I think it's part of it, certainly. There are a lot of uh, overlaps between um, the, the fight for kind of environmental justice and that for racial justice and social justice. They're, of course, distinct, but um, uh, they, they are complementary. Um, and kind of at a fundamental level, the idea of rolling back environmental protections is is basically exposing what should be a public good to private gain. So it's a cost that all of us bear, the degradation of our ecosystems, exacerbation of climate change. Um, that's that's a social cost. Uh, but then the benefits of extraction go to a much smaller group, um, typically these major multinational corporations. And in the case of coal, it's it's largely um, kind of Australian uh, corporations or, or other international corporations. So it's not even that the, the profits are going to stay in Canada. So we do, we certainly gain economic benefits from coal extraction, um, but they're not widely shared. Um, and, and that's been kind of the this concentration of economic and political power to get, not to get like too political economy on you, but that, that's kind of the core of what's driving unrest around the world. And it manifests in different ways across the political spectrum in that you get pushback from the left and the right about uh, whether it's, it's corporate power or elites or so on. Um, mm-hmm. But this privatization of profit is a big problem. With the sort of rhetoric coming out of Trump uh, with undermining institutions and eroding trust in the U.S., what does a huge environmental rollback without public consultation mean for politics here in Alberta? Is this going to hurt the popularity of the Kenny government, do you think? 
Well, it, it probably should, but I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic uh, on this issue um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you, you know, especially reactionary right-wing governments like the Trump administration and, and also the, the Kenny government in Alberta, I mean, they make changes so quickly and so fundamentally that it's really hard to keep up. Like, it'd be hard, I think, hard for you and I to name kind of the five most outrageous things Trump did in his first year of office, because there's been so many since then. It's yeah. just, it's hard to keep up. And especially when things happen without public consultation, um, as, as has been the case in Alberta with these environmental rollbacks, there's just, uh, there's not an opportunity even to fight back. Um, yeah. And then the, the second, the second problem is that, you know, when a government does something that's so egregious, uh, it, it harms the public interest. So obviously there's kind of two responses. One is it can, it can galvanize opposition, and certainly you see opposition parties trying to use things like this, this coal uh, policy to generate support um, and try and, uh, you know, fight back against the government. So that's one outcome. And that's ultimately a positive one. The other is disillusionment. And the thing is about the thing about disillusionment is it actually helps the incumbent. Um, you know, some people are going to see these kinds of policies, the uh, this coal revitalization, um, the privatization of a lot of public parks in Alberta. And they're going to say, I, you know, I give up. I threw up my hands. I can't believe the government would do this. And that actually helps the government in power. If those people no longer engage in the democratic process, if they don't vote and so on, um, it, it can really benefit a government. We've had this command and control mindset in Western society for so long with regard to environmental policy. I always think of a dam as the perfect example it's not only harnessing the water for our own needs, but it's preventing natural fluctuations in rivers. How do we break out of this old mindset? And where can we turn for an example of where things are going better? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's it's good that you mentioned that other places are doing a good job, because one of the, I think, biggest misconceptions in the kind of climate policy sphere, environmental policy sphere at least the kind of public perception of it is that there's no alternative. Like how could we possibly imagine a world without fossil fuels? It's just, it's, it's inconceivable. And, and uh, of course it's not, there are a lot of places, there are a lot of people who have been thinking about this and have lots of good ideas for how a different kind of economy could work. Um, and there are also lots of examples around the world of cities that are, especially cities, actually cities have been leading the way mm-hmm. in decarbonizing, creating more livable spaces, basically creating lives for people that don't rely on fossil fuel extraction. Um, and, and so there are a lot of positive examples, not just, I mean, Europe is further ahead than we are in a lot of ways. Cities like uh, Amsterdam are really leading the way in terms of trying to create kind of a local circular economy right. that doesn't create a lot of waste. Um, but even there, are, I mean, cities in uh, North America have really been leading the way in trying to just basically make more livable, more sustainable cities. Um, mm-hmm. And that's partly because that's where, I, I mean, at municipal level is where the, the real impacts of uh, environmental degradation are felt. Um, and especially cities that have been experiencing really bad pollution, um, really bad, uh, you know, heat related stress, thinking about how can we make a greener, cleaner city. Yeah. Um, it's already happening. Um, the, the challenge is, especially when it comes to something like climate change, you need everybody to buy in. Um, it's not really enough for individual cities. You need, uh, you know, regional governments, whether it's provinces or states, uh, you need federal governments, of course, uh, you need everyone to buy in. And we haven't seen the same political will 
at those higher levels of government that we've seen at the lower levels of government. Yeah. Um, but that's the challenge, just political will. If you, if you talk to most kind of climate policy uh, activists or, or campaigners or researchers, they'll tell you like, we have the solutions. We know, we know what we need to do. Yeah. Um, that's not the barrier. The barrier is getting buy-in uh, from our political process. That's the real challenge right now. And I think you said it earlier, things have happened so rapidly. It's only been six months since we all started work from home and in that sense become very self-sufficient. And perhaps we've proven to ourselves that we are incredibly uh, capable as individuals. Could we not revive the economy at the individual level? And, and I think having a universal basic income, which is what the CERB is essentially about, will empower enough people in time that we will see the returns economically manifold. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you bring up a really important point about what COVID has taught us. I mean, COVID has taught us so many things. Um, but one of them is that cultural change can actually happen really quickly. Uh, because, again, one of the barriers to a, a greener economy, um, to decarbonization more broadly, is the idea that, well, people won't change their behaviors. People aren't going to stop driving as much. People aren't going to stop flying as much. People aren't going to stop consuming, uh, you know, cheap imported goods. And yet COVID comes along and we all changed our lifestyles overnight. Um, it doesn't mean it was easy. It doesn't mean all the changes that, that we've had to make because of COVID are good ones. But the point is that when we all agree that there's a crisis, uh, we can change how we live very quickly. And, and frankly, uh, climate change especially requires us to make that kind of change on a large scale. Um, and we can do it. Again, the issue is not, uh, it's not that we don't know how, it's that we just have to have the will. You can catch Keeping Green at keepinggreenpodcast.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Perry, and until next time, keep it green.